Hi, I'm Dr. George Calaveras, and welcome to Reasonable Necessary, Australia's Perry Podcast Series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm coming to you from the Luxury Land and pay my respects to the traditional owners and elders, past, present, and emerging. But before we go any further, please do me a favor and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so that you can be notified of future episodes. On today's episode, I speak with disability rights lawyer Natalie Wade about NDS appeals, the NDS review, and her national televised speech on the ABC. Check it out. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hey, George. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that we could do this because I've been wanting to sit down and chat to you for a very long time. A lot of people have asked me to get you on the show, and here we are. We're going to talk about the NDIS and lots of other really important things that you know a lot about. But before we go there, how about we talk people how you and I first met? Well, that's a very good place to start. I think not too many people would know that fun story. Should you start or should I? I'll, I'll do the, the fun written and then take over. I was organising a youth disability summit. And that was going to look at what young people want from the, at the time, I think it was like a 10 year uh, national disability strategy. And I was looking for the best, smartest, most awesome people around the country. And they were tired, and I was like, I have to get this young person to come to Melbourne. Totally. And I think you should preface that, George, with the fact that no one knew who I was at that time. I was very new to the disability rights movement. I was a first-year law student um, and had been exploring getting involved in disability advocacy and I was involved in student politics at uni at the time and I thought this seemed really cool um and beggar's belief for someone who's been uh interstate uh over 15 times this year but it was um the first time I'd ever been uh interstate as an adult which was very daunting, um, but it was incredible. I did a talk for YDAS, the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. Is that right, George? Yes. But, yeah. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, and I did a talk on social participation um, and what it meant to be a young person and what I wanted access to. Anyway, when we were there, you might not remember this, George, but it's a core memory for me that Bill Shorten, then the Parliamentary Secretary, was there 
and I distinctly recall him uh, being there during my little speech and watching him take notes. And uh, at the time, I thought, oh, my gosh, here I am informing the way forward. He's taking notes, although now in hindsight, maybe he was just writing his diary or something, probably wasn't taking notes on what I was saying. But anyway, it was an incredible experience. And I met incredible young people with disabilities, uh, including you and the late Madeline Sob and Jared uh, uh, now has got married and has a different surname. Um, but anyway, lots of Melbourneites with disabilities who became lifelong friends. Yes, and, and I remember at the time, you know, when I saw your um fully present because at the time i'd never heard of you i just right. had seen the application and i'd seen what you'd said and i was very impressed by your written application but then i heard you speak and i was like wow this this young person is gonna go on to do really awesome stuff and i felt a little bit proud whenever i for the doing things over the years, I was like, oh, yeah, that's Matt. I, I, I chose her out of probably <laughs> 50 other young people to come to this event, and I kind of took a bit of credit um, for having a uh, quote unquote discovered Natalie Wilde. <laughs> well, I think you absolutely can take that credit uh, where it's due because. Certainly, um, as I'm sure many uh, disability advocates can attest, those initial uh, touch points within the disability rights movement um, and having a positive experience of, of really um, getting your feet into public advocacy uh, is really important. And certainly uh, with WIDAS, um, even though I was and still am from Adelaide, um, was a huge part of the beginning of my story. No surprise to me at all. You went on to become a human rights lawyer and you run a law firm that specializes working on disability human rights, which is awesome. I love that we have in our country a law firm that's focused on human rights and what sort of legal work do you do for disabled people? Well, so equality lawyers is, um, as you know, and as you've described, a disability-led disability rights law firm. And so we focus on everyday legal issues facing people with disabilities and their families. So that is typically areas like disability discrimination, um, the NDIS and seeking reviews of decisions by the NDIA, um, usually before the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. We also do um, some work around um, helping people to seek review of decisions by Services Australia or Centrelink um, to reject their disability support pension or to incur a debt. And again, that is before the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, but we also do some work here in South Australia for people um, that are subject to 
guardianship and administration orders when they want to seek a review of that order. Um, so it's it's really those everyday uh, legal issues that face our disability community. Um, and then when I'm not doing um, individual casework, uh, as you know, George, I am often doing systemic public advocacy work. Yes, and you do a lot of that. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in understanding how you got to that place where you thought, I'm going to start my own law firm. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, wild story. Um, I've run Equality Lawyers for almost five years now, um, but before that I was a state government lawyer. I predominantly worked as in-house counsel to the Department of Human Services in South Australia, so I went off and did some secondments. I did a secondment in a royal commission. I did... Um, a secondment uh, in disability policy and assisting to get our disability inclusion uh, bill through the parliament for the minister. But I predominantly held that role in the Department of Human Services as their in-house lawyer. And so um, in about 2018-19, I thought to myself, you know what, when I was in final year law school, I really wanted to be a disability rights lawyer, um, but that doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist here in Adelaide. Um, there's a few jobs like that in uh, Victoria and New South Wales, but I have um, very high physical care needs, and so I had thought that I would move uh, to Melbourne specifically um, when the NDIS came in and I would be able to transfer my uh, care funding across the border and continue to be able to receive that level of care that I needed. Um, uh, can, we talk about that? Just, can we talk about that issue that you just raised about the NDIS and being able to move? What people, it's funny because um, one of the things that I like to do is to remind people what life was like before the NDIS. Because mm. it hasn't been a long time, but it's been long enough that I think people are starting to forget how horrible it was. But we were essentially trapped in our own states, weren't we? Because you'd get a funding package and you would hold on to that for dear life. Mm. And there's no way you'd risk moving to another state and joining that waiting list. It was absolutely horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, it was not even a prospect to be able to move interstate. You know, I, uh, like you, George, have a level of physical care that is um, an, a number of times a day and, and I just, I simply cannot live without it. I can't go to the toilet, have a shower, get in and out of bed. I, I really have um, no no independent physical function um, when uh, I'm going about daily activities, and so it's really like it's not a it's not a nice to have or a would be better if I just I either receive that care or I go to hospital or I be institutionalised, and so 
um, yeah, as you say, when state government funding was how we received that care, you know, you would get the funding that you need and, and you would stay put. You would stay put and you would also, you would not ask for more, you would not ask for less, like you would you would just hold the ship steady um, and ensure that you continued to live the quality of life that you were able to achieve with that level of funding. And so sort of when I was graduating from law school, I knew that there were amazing human rights, law firms and legal services available in Melbourne and Sydney. But it was never it was never a prospect for me to be able to move um, and pursue those opportunities because how would I get care? So my game plan was that when the NDIS came in, um, I would then have transportable funding across the country and I would pursue my career in human rights law then. However, uh, we in South Australia became um, uh, full participants of the NDIS in 2018. So South Australia was a trial site for children um, and so adults came onto the scheme from about 2017-18 um, and so I was transferred over um, from the state system in, in the October of 2018. But uh, it, my first NDIS plan was literally the first piece of mail that I received to the home that I had just built in Adelaide's suburbs uh, with my now husband. And so it seemed um, the case that we were pretty settled here and we wouldn't, we wouldn't be leaving Adelaide. So I had to come up with my own version of uh, being able to pursue my dream of human rights law. Um, and so Equality Lawyers was born. I really wanted to take my um, years of experience in government law uh, and bring them back to my community and defend disabled people and their families, which is now what I do day in, day out. What's that like now, um, doing the intensive work that you do, representing in particular NDIS participants and, and standing up for our rights? What's that like? And it, it's a very, um, it's a deeply privileged uh, role that I get to have um, when I get to stand alongside disabled people and their families in particular when running NDIS appeals. Um, it is just such an honour, George, for me to be able to do that and to be able to bring my skills um, to them. I, I certainly uh, experience elements of frustration and disappointment that the NGIS in particular doesn't um, always, or in my caseload often, um, help disabled people to live the life that they want to live in accordance with their human rights. Um, and I um, find that at some it's a little bit more challenging than other ways. Um, but for the most part, I find it to be a deep, a deep honour and privilege. 
so you get to other fight being guys, you get to do that. But like where you're saying, hey government, this isn't according to the law. You need to do the right thing, government. That must not only be a real privilege, as you said, but it must give you a real sense of satisfaction when you get some outcomes for the people to live their lives the way they, they deserve to live their lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um, it, I think in, in some ways, George, it's twofold. I think the, the first sense of pride that I have for my clients is that they get to access a law firm of their choosing. Um, and so a really important role that equality lawyers plays in the deliver- delivery of legal services is ensuring that people with disability and their families have some choice about who their lawyer is and what type of lawyer they engage. Um, so before us, the choices were a little bit more limited and mostly centred around um, legal services that the government has funded, uh, so community legal centres and similar, um, which play an incredibly important role in ensuring that Australians have access to justice and have access to fair and equal legal services. However, um, something that I think was was really missing um, in the provision of legal services for people with disability is their um, choice of being able to go to a private lawyer and have that private lawyer uh, defend them um, in the case um, in a very sort of like robust and holistic uh, way. So that's probably my first sense of pride. And then when we do get a win, I feel an incredible sense of pride that that person is able to um, achieve whatever human right they have been denied or hasn't been available to them. Um, and that's that's incredibly important to me. You know, when the Earth Act came into being and I, I saw in black and white that people in our country would have the right to reasonable and necessary support and, and that that was enshrined in legislation I was so ecstatic and I, I'm still very, very grateful that we have the NDIS Act. What, what are your reflections on the, the Act as, as a lawyer but also as a person with a disability? I think as you were saying earlier, George, it is important to always remind ourselves where we came from before um, and what life was like for disabled people um, prior to the NGIS when they required substantial support. Um, I agree with you. I am incredibly proud that Australia offers um, a legislative entitlement to reasonable and necessary supports. 
um, and also has a legal framework to deliver on the economic and social participation of people with disability. Um, I think that is incredibly important to the ultimate fulfilment of Australia's obligations under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. Um, but I also acknowledge that the NDIS has brought uh, disability support services to people who have never had them before and particularly to people who may have had disabilities that were not properly recognised um, and were either ignored or were institutionalised. And I'm particularly thinking about people with intellectual disability and psychosocial disability where they have been significantly left behind um, or shut out of modern Australia. Um, and so for me, having a piece of law that clearly sets the tone and expectation for not only this government, but all governments to come, um, but also for the broader Australian community about the important and valued role of people with disabilities is very, is very critical. Is there anything that you would want to change about the, the act itself? Yeah, I think um, you know, we're about to see a lot of change, aren't we, perhaps come through the NGIS review. I think for me, the current way that reasonable and necessary is framed um, has become recognised against disabled people in some forums. And I'm thinking particularly around the criteria within um, Section 34.1, which is the section of the Act that deals with what we all call reasonable and necessary, um, around value for money. I feel like so that's an essential criteria that needs to be um, confirmed by the CEO or her delegate uh, to be able to um, fund reasonable and necessary supports. But, George, over the past decade um, of, of the agency, the NDIA, uh, implementing the Act, that, in my experience as a lawyer representing NDIS participants, has become quite weaponised against disabled people um, insofar as it's creating this narrative where there needs to be this, you know, cost-benefit analysis that demands the lowest possible or the cheapest option to be pursued, which is perpetuating a narrative of, you know, the, the, the cheap version, the lowest cost version, the lowest common denominator, which I do not believe is what the parliament intended when the then Gillard government introduced the act. And I do not think that it is the current government's uh, wish for people with disability, but in any event, it has become ingrained in the narrative and I would like to see that reformed 
so as to uh, reshape and redesign how we talk about funding for support services. I think also there would be benefit in reviewing the parts of the Act that provide the right for a participant to seek review of their uh, decisions, oh, sorry, of the decisions of the NDIA, um, because we have found that, again, that has become a process that has been uh, weaponized and used uh, in a way that is unhelpful for NDIS participants, and that, too, requires some legislative attention. The value for money part of the Act, um, part of the Section 34, um, it's very interesting because um, value is not just financial. I think that we need to remember that value can be all, all kinds of things that people uh, benefit from. And, and, you know, a more expensive support might be more valuable if it means someone isn't stuck in a in a five-bedroom group home, for example. So I would like to see the way that is expressed to actually spell that out more so there is that understanding. Yeah, same. So I think that the intent of it is okay. You know, of course, when you are funding supports and you are the government responsible for public monies, of course you need to have some analysis around ensuring that this is an effective and efficient use of public money, which I think is in part the original intention of Section 34.1c, which is value for money. Um, but what has happened, George, over many uh, years of interpreting um, that particular part of the Act, um, and not necessarily by the tribunal, but by the agency themselves. I think that's become a little confused, um, and I'm not confident that um, without legislative reform we will become any less clear. And so I think that um, amending that particular part of reasonable and necessary as a criteria uh, to be uh, reflective of what the disability community, um, but also probably the government, uh, wanted to say would be incredibly helpful. I recently interviewed both uh, and Bruce, uh, who are the coaches of the NDIS Review, and I gave us some insights into the recommendations that, that, they're, that they're making. And one of those insights was that they want to uh, have an assessment, and that that assessment would be done by the government, by the NDIA, and that that would result in a budget, and that, and, and that budget as a whole would need to be reasonable and necessary, rather than the current item-by-item uh, assessment that, that, that is done against the Act. What are your thoughts on the 
recommendation? Well, without sounding like a total lawyer, we need more detail, right? But I, I would say this. The, the current way in which participants um, have to provide somewhat endless amounts of information and evidence on their lives and the intricacies of their daily schedules and how their bodies work and what they want to do with their life up until the next 12 months, etc., uh, is, is not the right way to go about it. And so in that sense, if the NDIA in consultation and co-design with uh, the disability community were able to put together an assessment process that did two things in my view, then it would be potentially workable. In my view, it would have to um, have a, a part of that assessment process that requires the assessor and in turn the decision maker uh, to place significant weight on the views of the disabled person. So if I go to that assessment and I say, as a disabled participant, I cannot put myself on the toilet because my legs don't work, then I want to be believed. And, and I want that to be the way in which um, government and the agency approach all people with disability so whilst I, as a person with a physical disability, uh, might be a little bit of an easy example, I want that example to be shared by others, including those with intellectual disability or psychosocial disability. So the assessors um, play significant weight and have appropriate training and education on the lived experience of disability. Um, so that would be the first um, initial must-have if that was what the recommendation was going to do. Then, George, I would say the other must-have, um, and if it didn't have this, then I don't want to hear any more about it, is a clear way for the decision made an assessment to be reviewed. So it's very important whenever we put together um, systems that affect the rights of disabled people that we make clear the decisions are able to be reviewed and there's an independent and transparent approach to that review. And so I think, George, if the agency and the government are willing to co-design, consult and co-create the assessment process with the disability community, they agree at the outset that there would be weight placed on the views of the disabled person as opposed to clinical evidence or similar, and there's a right to review made legally clear, then, then I think that that would be worth exploring. I agree, and I think that 
co-designing that is really at the crux of it and absolutely that it can be objectively reviewed by someone other than the government because the government clearly is somewhat conflicted in this in this area. You also worked as a expert reviewer for the independence expert review process. That must have been very interesting that, that you suddenly had the, the power to um, look at those decisions and tell the government, hang on, maybe you haven't done the right thing here. Tell us a bit about that. So for listeners who might not be aware, the independent expert review process was introduced by the current Albanese government under the leadership of Minister Shorten. And the purpose of the independent expert review was to offer an alternative dispute resolution process that was parallel to the external review process of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So under the NGIS Act, a participant has the right to seek a review of a decision made by the NDIA and that review is conducted by the Administrative Abuse Tribunal or the AAT. But when the current government came into power, there were concerns afoot that AAT reviews were taking too long and were also creating an untoward and overly legalistic experience for people with disability. That's probably a very diplomatic way of putting it, but there you go. So that so the, the IER, as it became known, was an opportunity for participants to have independent expert reviewers um, come in and have a look and, and hear from them as to what supports they need and then apply the NDIS Act to those requests and provide a recommendation. The recommendation is not legally binding and so the parties are able to take or leave it. If the agency or the participant was to think, oh, Natalie, absolutely not, then absolutely not. That's fine. Um, uh, but it, it was hoped and, and I think in in practical reality, it was the case that participants found an opportunity to be heard and talk to someone who was um, available to consider the matter uh, quickly and efficiently um, and be able to provide some uh, recommendations about the situation. That's a very important thing when you consider that the the alternative can be a much more confronting and difficult process for people and, and also more, more expensive. So do you think it was an effective process and do you think that it should be a, a part of a future NDIS? I think the process was great relief in the time that it was brought into being. So in the previous government, 
and particularly from about 2020 onwards, there was a significant amount of um, uh, litigation before the tribunal to try and get participants the supports that they need. And I, I, I say that, George, mostly as a lawyer representing those people. Um, but in terms of the future of having the independent expert review in the precise form that it was in, I'm not, not really sure. I think that my mere views are probably less important. What I do think uh, it did make clear was that there is a significant role for alternative dispute resolution to be uh, put into the review process uh, so the NGIS participants are able to work through issues with the NGIA in a more conciliatory environment. I think that would be great to put in. I agree. I think what frustrates me is that oftentimes they're decided on and then there's like this sudden um, realisation that in order to get anything fixed in your plan, that you're going to have to go to court. And I think it's good to have another process where you can actually have a conversation and and, and a conversation where you feel heard, where, where your, your needs and your circumstances are uh, 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 fully heard. Yeah, I think that's right, George. And I think it again goes back to remember what it was like before. And so before, uh, in state government funding regimes, the only way that you could seemingly get a review of your funding was to go to a current affair or or get on the telly somehow or go on talkback radio. There was no... Because disability support funding was not in law um, in the way that it is in the NGIS uh, Act, then, then there was no obvious and immediate appeal right where you could seek review of the government's decision. Now, of course, there were ways to do it, um, but probably your best bet for success was, was to go on today, tonight or similar. And so that is terribly undignified um, and very invasive for the disabled person. And so there's definitely a significant and imperative role to having a right to legal review of government decisions. But also I think there is a need to recognise that NDIS funding is a little different to other government funding and that there is a need to introduce that more conciliatory approach to resolving uh, issues when they arise when a participant is not getting the support that they need. Absolutely. Now, I'm really excited to talk to people that on International Day of People Disability on the 3rd of December, you're going to be the Disability Leadership Organization on the TV. 
I'm not going to say how exciting. I am. Oh my gosh. So I'm going to go and tell my mother I'm going to be on the telly. It's very <laughs> cool. And what are you going to talk about? So I will be, as you know, George, the inaugural Disability Leadership Orator, and it's an opportunity to share with Australians uh, my thoughts on what are the issues facing our nation with respect to disability rights. And so um, I will be speaking about, and I haven't told anyone else this, so you're getting it first hot off my hard drive, not the press, but never mind. Um, I will be talking about phasing out segregation, reflecting on my own lived experience of living in segregated housing um, and the important role that disability leadership has in eradicating segregation from our communities. Excellent. So people can check that out on the ABC on the 3rd of December. Do you know what time it's going to be on? I don't know what time. I do know, though, that it will be available on uh, the ABC broadcast on Sunday the 3rd of December 2023 and it will then be available on iView thereafter. Excellent. Now, before we go, I have one more question for you. And that question I'm going to ask, because I want people to benefit from all the knowledge and experience that you've had in advocating for NDI participants and, and representing them in, uh, in court and um, in, the, in appeals. What advice would you give people with disabilities who are unhappy with their NDIS and who want their plan to be reviewed? What advice would you give to them? In my best advice for an NDIS participant facing the prospect of a review is to get on and seek the review. I know that it can be daunting. Um, and it can be a scary process, but it's important to know that disability supports are essential and you should feel empowered to ask for what you need. Um, make sure that you're working with your treating team and working with people around you to present your story in the way that is best for you. Um, and also don't hesitate to reach out for help when and if you need it. Remember that disability advocates are incredibly important and valuable. And also, if you need it, you can get a lawyer uh, to help you. So don't do it alone um, and, and go forward and, and seek the review uh, now um, because time frames apply um, and make sure that you ask for, for what you need. Yes, excellent advice. And... We've got another uh, podcast episode on that exact topic, so if you want to hear more about that, check out the link above the above my head. Natalie, thank you 
for this conversation. And thank you for everything that you do. Like, we really benefit from the work that you do in standing up for our human rights. And I, I'm so proud of everything that you do. And I want you to keep doing more and more. And I can't wait to see you on the TV on the 3rd of December. Thanks so much for having me, George, and thanks so much for all of your support uh, since I was a tiny, tiny advocate. Thanks, Natalie. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. We love your feedback, so please share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.